Chapter 3 Rules for Service No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4-5 through 5. It is not enough to simply perform what might be called good deeds in the estimation of the world, for one might receive the applause of men and miss his reward at the hands of God. Neither is it enough for someone to be so given to service that he might win the applause of people everywhere. There is no special promise in God's Word written for the person who is simply faithful in outward service. Paul must have had this in mind when he said, He does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. It is a good thing for the Christian to compare his life, both public and private, his innermost thoughts and the hidden man of his heart, to the Word of God, to see if in any point he is falling away from God's plan and the Holy Spirit's guidance. Solemn Topic When John, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, wrote, Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown, he presented what to my mind is one of the most solemn topics in all the Bible, namely, that one might be saved, have his sins forgiven, stand before God justified, be perfectly sure of being ultimately received into his presence and be saved throughout eternity, yet miss his reward and lose his crown. This chapter is a note of warning and a heart cry to people everywhere to search their lives aided by the Spirit and to ask God to deal very thoroughly with them even though this dealing may mean cutting off some sin that is very much loved or giving up some long-cherished plan. All service must be prompted by right motives. It is not so much how the work appears outwardly that commends it to God, for in this His judgment is given differently from that of man. Instead, it is entirely a question as to what is behind it all that prompted the service. The giving of the widow's might and its wholehearted acceptance by our Master is an illustration of this fact. For in the desire that prompted the gift was found that which was of ten thousand times more value than the gift itself. One might preach the gospel and win hundreds of souls for Christ, while the motives that prompted the preaching might have been wrong. One might oversee a Sunday school with much success, be a teacher of acknowledged ability, lead the young people's work in the church, and be a chosen leader of the mission work. In all these endeavors, he might have the seal of the approval of men and the praise of the multitude because of acknowledged success, yet miserably fail at the great day of awards to receive one single crown for faithfulness, simply because the work was born in selfishness and carried on in pride. It was not done for the glory of God, but rather for the glory of man. One might build churches, and for his supposed generosity be highly esteemed by people, yet receive a rebuke from the lips of the risen Christ. One might endow schools that God would use for the betterment of society and for the accomplishment of his own purposes or the working of his own plans, 
yet have no recognition on the great day of awards. One might give his money to clothe the poor and feed the hungry, or he might be known wherever the English language is spoken for his charitable works. Yet when the great day of awards comes, he might hear the master say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Matthew chapter 7 verse 23. His soul is saved, but his life is lost. All of these things are true because while outwardly the service was wonderful and the success great, the motive that prompted it all was selfish. Jesus himself has said that there would be some who would say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Thus the teaching becomes more intense and the lesson more startling, for one might even think that he is shaping his life according to God's plan, yet most terribly miss the reward. When Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, he said, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 and 15. To my mind, this is very clearly a lesson to Christian workers in general and to ministers in particular. The foundation is the same for us all, Jesus Christ, but the superstructure may be very different. It is a most solemn thought, one of the most solemn I know, that when the great day of fire will come, each person's work will be tried according to what kind it is. The ministry of the man whom the world honored will be touched by fire. The service of the Christian worker, from the first effort made for Christ to the last, will certainly be tested. The teaching of the Sunday school teacher, throughout his or her entire Christian experience, will be brought beneath the searching light of the Son of God. The testimony of every Christian in every land will be searched through and through. The life in the home, in the place of business, in the streets, at home or in foreign lands, by day and by night, will be tested by the fire of God. If the work is burned, the person will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. It is a tremendously solemn message. I might have all the experience God has given me as a preacher, teacher, evangelist, father, husband, and friend, and then eventually stand before God with all my works swept away, going into His presence with the smell of fire upon my garments. God forbid! Paul had this fate in mind when he said, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others I myself will not be disqualified, or, as we have already seen, be disapproved. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 and 27 May God keep us from meeting such an experience as this on that great day. We must labor with clean hands. God never uses an unclean person. 
it is possible that one may be saved, yet allow sin to control him in some way. But it is not possible for God to use that which is either common or unclean. Scripture Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17. From this command of Scripture, we learn that if one is in the very slightest touch with the world, he is against God, and he soon loses his power. He loses his testimony, and God sets him aside. Scripture Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24 should be the cry of every Christian everywhere. The old law touching the priesthood is a good thing for us to remember. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so as not to profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any man among all your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy gifts which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am the Lord. Leviticus chapter 22, verses 1-3 through The doctrine of separation in the Old Testament for the priests is for us in the New Testament, for Peter tells us that all believers are priests unto God. The Old Testament doctrine has, however, been intensified by the teaching and the touch of Jesus Christ. You shall set the turban on his head, and put the holy crown on the turban. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Exodus chapter 29, verses 6-7 through The anointing oil put upon the head of the priest was a sign that he was separated from all worldly services and every selfish principle of life. From that moment on, he was not his own man, but God's. The oil in the Old Testament represents the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and whether we have recognized it or not, it is nevertheless true. By the Spirit of God we have been regenerated. By that same Spirit we have been made alive and by the same Spirit we have been sealed or anointed as God's own special treasure. If we have not allowed Him to use us, we have robbed Him of His right, and at the great day of awards we will be called to a strict account. The priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person, nor defile himself even for his father or his mother, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. Leviticus chapter 21, verses 10-12 through 12. How close this teaching is, and how completely many of us are condemned by it as we apply it to our own lives, yet there is no reason for discouragement. In the olden times, when the priests or the people were in touch with sin, the ashes of the red heifer were sprinkled upon them for cleansing, and immediately they stepped back into fellowship 
and God clothed them with power. In the New Testament, a better provision is made. For if the blood of goats and bulls, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13-14 through 14. I have not been able to find in the New Testament, with the exception of the Lord's Prayer, any place where it is said that the Christian must ask for forgiveness of sins. But I do read, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I learn, then, that if I confess my sins, He is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse me perfectly. And when He forgives sin, He always forgets it.